0: Welcome to Swift Moment Podcast. I'm Ariel Swift. Today we're talking with Dr. Amy Gilliland about COVID-19 and opportunities doulas have to make a positive impact on birthing persons and relationships with hospitals. A little about our guest first though, Amy L. Gilliland has all sorts of initials that alone make her a valuable expert on these topics. She is a birth doula trainer, an advanced certified doula, and an AASECT certified sex educator supervisor. She also researches and teaches about doula labor support, women's sexual experiences, infant mental health, and the psychological needs of people during the birth experience. And Amy is a past psychology faculty at Madison College and one of the first Dona International birth doula trainers. Amy is a UW-Madison research fellow, and her current projects include a critical analysis of the birth doula profession. Dr. Gilliland's research has been published in JOGNN, Midwifery, the Journal of Perinatal Education, Sexuality and Culture, and the Wisconsin Medical Journal. She's considered to be a thought leader and visionary on birth doula issues through her influential blog, Doulaing the Doula, and her new book, The Heart of the Doula, Essentials for Practice and Life. Additionally, Amy serves on Dane County Pre-FIMR Committee which reviews fetal infant and maternal deaths quarterly for Dane County in Wisconsin, and she also serves on the Wisconsin Association for Perinatal Care Board of Directors for two consecutive terms. Since we recorded, Illinois' governor has made the call to close all schools, including Chicago Public Schools, starting Tuesday, March 17th, and will remain closed until March 30th. Thank you for joining this important conversation. Please leave comments or questions on our Facebook page, A Swift Moment Podcast. Here we go. Thank you so much for joining our newest episode of A Swift Doula. I am Ariel Swift. Cole Ramsey is here with me again, as well as Dr. Amy Gilliland. So thank you so much for joining us to talk about COVID-19 and all of the crazy things that are happening. Um, I really appreciate having your professional insight into some some of these concerns. So thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Uh, You know, we're in a time of cultural change and it's happening very fast. I mean, there's things that are going to last and linger about our behaviors and how we interact with one another and how we do things that are, yeah, they're going to last after this. And so that's why we have this feeling of like uncertainty and stuff. It isn't just about the the virus itself. It's about as a culture, we're learning, okay, how do we want to respond to these things? who do we want to be? And I think that's why people are feeling more uncertainty than usual, because it has some weight to it. And how it's going to affect us all hasn't yet been decided.
0: I think that's a really good point. Um, I am almost obsessively listening to NPR (laughs) with information that's coming through when one of the reporters today um, made the I think, very honest point of we're so used to having data at our fingertips that when we don't know something, we can get on the internet and we can search for the answer and then we can feel better. But that's not the case. So we have to become comfortable with the unknown. And that's not something that we're good at at all. Just like laboring people have a really hard time figuring out how to manage their feelings in labor and like not actually knowing what's going to be happening. This is this cultural feeling that our entire country is going through at this moment.
1: Right. And this is a place where doulas can really lead because those of us that are more experienced who have been through 40, 50, 60, 100, 500 births, we know that uncertainty. We live with that every single day. Am I going to be called to a birth? What's going to happen? you know, all of just the daily stuff, but also not knowing how a labor is going to turn out. And we don't tend to think about that as being a skill set, the living with uncertainty, but it is. And it's certainly one we can tap into now and one where we can lead other people who we care about to a sense of wisdom to say, you know, it really is okay to not know. You know, all you really need to do is, it's the same thing with early labor, Uh, relaxation, distraction, get up and move. You know, that's how, that's positive self-care when you don't know what's going to happen. And this is just another one of those life situations. We're just all experiencing it simultaneously uh, rather than um, taking our turn with it. And I think that's a part of it too.
0: I think that's a really good point. One of the uh, self-care pieces that we, uh, that Cole and I are trying to help uh, the doula community is also trying to plan for this very volatile change that's happening in a business that is already volatile. It is, uh, we never know when clients are going to want to hire us. There's always confined time period for when people will reach out to us and if they will want to have dual care and, and 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 how safe they're feeling with that choice in general. And now there's a very real conflict between the possibility that adding another person to a labor team is actually a potential risk for someone's health. And so there is some very real concerns with that, but also some imaginary concerns with that. And what we hear doulas being concerned about also has to do with their relationship with the hospital and how they can remain on the positive side of both conversations with medical administrators and also be a connecting bridge between the administration and their clients so that the correct information is getting dispelled accurately without fear and also with a sense that their doula is still a welcome person in that that arena could you speak on that just for a minute i know you had a really interesting phone call yesterday but i'm also just curious about your opinion
1: yeah, I think that um, this is where it really gets revealed. How do the administrators really feel about doula support? Do they, are they buying into the evidence? And are they creating policies that understand um, that the doula is not a layperson? The, the, the definition of a layperson is someone who is untrained. So that is not a doula because many of us go through extensive hours of training and days. And we also learn on the job. So um, certification, if you have it, is one of those things that can be helpful now. But if you don't, um, I mean, if we're going to talk about different strategies, how do you need to work with administrators? Uh, First, um, some of them are looking for reasons to include you. So they need your help from the local doula community to say, OK, we want you here. A1 wrote this wonderful statement, we follow A1 guidelines and other things here in our labor and delivery unit, and we want to do this, help us, give us the tools we need, show us your professionalism so that we can put you in a separate category. Now, um, the hospital where I live, uh, just two hours ago, I got an email from the clinical nurse uh, practitioner that that's what they had decided to do, that they're treating doulas and community binwives wives is a separate category from visitors and visitor policies do not apply. And there's several other hospitals um, that I've heard of that have done this in Oregon and in, in the state of Washington too. So it, it's, uh, it's everywhere. And there's also ones that are restricting their, they're saying, well, doulas are visitors and the doulas then are put in the position of having to advocate for themselves, you know, and say, well, no, we really aren't this, we're special. And these are the things that we are doing um, in order to make sure that we're not communicative and we are professionals. Actually, doulas are paraprofessionals. Um, and that's in, according to the United States labor law. So that we have, our own, we have our own category. And to be a paraprofessional means that you are trained and that you work alongside professionals. In this case, in the medical realm would be physicians and nurses and midwives, So that's what our role is—to work alongside them, and um, so it's just a matter of how do how are hospitals using the evidence for doulas and their local experiences to make the birth doula support experience still, still possible for their clients or their patients? Or are they saying no? We have active infection. I mean, it's one thing if you have active infection in the hospital or in that community that's actively spreading, or if you don't have one now at all. You know, I think that that that, you know, right now in our state, in our county, we have no, we have three confirmed cases and all of them have resolved. All of them are in the recovery period. So we have nothing in our state right now. So nothing in our county right now. I mean, it could change tomorrow. We could have more. But um, as far as that cluster goes, that cluster is now closed. It's considered to be dealt with. So we'd have to start with a whole new cluster. Um, in areas where you've got international airports and you've got much more fluidity of borders, you know, uh, people perceive risk differently, and that's what doctors do. They figure out how do we manage risk best. So we want to make sure that we're as low risk as possible.
2: Amy, there, are doula communities are either really tight knit in my experience, or there are a lot of communities that are fractured right now. Is this a time where they could be? Um, connecting together um, so that they are going to hospital administration as as a group rather than like 20 doulas trying to reach out to the hospital to figure out what's happening. And and if you think that that would be advantageous, how do you have recommendations for maybe how that bridge can be created when there has been discontent Mm -hmm. historically?
1: just today on the Birth Monopoly blog, Kristen Pascucci posted a link to a, from an open letter that several doulas in New Jersey had put together. It's a Google document and um, it's for all doulas to use. So they've started the letter process. So you can, um, you don't have to, they've done this lovely thing so you don't have to start over from the very beginning. You can just tweak this particular letter for your community. So yes, doulas who are from, As you mentioned, fractured communities, sometimes it's divided because you're dealing with different populations. Sometimes there was an incident that happened or like my community, there's no central driving force to keep keep the established doulas wanting to embrace the newer doulas. There's just no reason because their businesses are going well. And so it's just like it's not organized because there isn't a purpose. So this would give them a purpose you know, if they had some central way to communicate with one another, you know, through Facebook or whatever. Um, So yes, it could certainly be a possibility for that. But I also think that one hospital getting letters from 20 different doulas who are certified from six or seven different organizations and some that aren't certified at all, but have been to 200 births. So we know your face. You know, I I don't think that's any less than one letter from 20 people.
2: That makes absolute sense. Ariel, did you have a follow
0: up? Yeah, I just, am um, I um, I mean, I think there's pros and cons to both of those. And I think that there's value uh, either way. Um, we know that hospital administrators are extremely busy right now. We know that their time is um, it is very valuable. So if we were, as we, if we as doulas were to kind of do the work to consolidate and show that all of these people are together, I could see them appreciating that. Or if doulas are individually sending letters, I could see that also um, making them take the time to consider doulas and who's to say what person is opening those letters and how they would feel about that.
1: I When you when I think about what, and this is what I was gonna put in a blog post I'm gonna publish later, it was like, what resources uh, can doulas use if they're advocating for their presence or to not be included in the restrictive visitor policies one is is the Association for Women's Health Obstetrical and Neonatal Nurses, also known as A1. They published a great statement. Now, today's Friday afternoon, and they published this on Wednesday afternoon. That was wonderfully supportive of, of, of uh, recognizing the unique role of doulas to the labor support team and that labor support is not optional. Um, second, several organizations such as Dona International have, um, have written a letter. And that's open for any doula to use, even if you're not a member of DONA. And that is a letter that's advocating for the doula to, be, um, to not be included in the restrictive visitor policies. Um, then after that, you um, it's up to the individual doula to figure out, okay, what can I use that's going to work with this particular administrator? For some, it's going to be the research on continuous care and that's that showing that my particular clients really care uh, one of the possible things that you can do is your clients um, can uh, advocate for, for themselves as well and say, look, this is the experience we wanted. We've read the research. Um, continuous support matters a lot to us. And when you deny us that, you're negating all what the research tells you is wonderful about doulas, why you opened the doors to start with. Um, second, uh, another approach might be a legal rights approach. Um, as Kristen Pascucci wrote in the blog today, she says it's a human right of the birthing person to decide who attends their birth, as well as a federal right to have support during the experience. So by denying their choice of labor support attendant, the hospital is negating their legal rights. So that may work with some administrators. Um, And I'm going to refer you to her blog with that post today, on March thirteenth, 2020, to get that information. Um, Thirdly, is explaining that we're paraprofessionals. and that the U.S. labor law sees us that way, is that we are not lay people, we are trained. Um, and I have a whole blog post about that. And all you need to do is put in doula, paraprofessional, and it will come up. Um, uh, fourth, another thing you do is sometimes paperwork equals professionalism in some medical cultures. So bringing your training workshop certificates, your continuing ed certificates if you aren't certified, and your certification credentials if you are showing them your legal contract or letter of agreement that's been signed by your client and your HIPAA release form, your client confidentiality release form. So for some administrators showing that, look, I am a business, I am a professional, here's my paperwork. Um, And we also, sometimes we might need to be a little bit more confrontational about their cultural bias because when a hospital has a single visitor policy in labor and delivery, What they're doing is revealing that they don't see labor support as valuable or necessary. And possibly it could be going further that it's showing their bias that they feel that intimate partners ought to be the people doing the labor support. Um, In this time of potential health crisis, what they're really doing is they're invalidating the experience of the partner, stating that the partner isn't worthy of receiving any support and that they're required to fulfill a cultural role of doing the labor support all by themselves, even if they didn't want to or don't feel qualified to do so. And that's why they hired the doula in the first place. So the hospital is really saying, we don't really care about the partner's needs. You're supposed to, in fact, we're going to make you do something you didn't want to do. In the very beginning, and so we're going to make your experience worse and what all of their research shows is when you force partners or fathers to do labor support and they don't want to their um, their labor support experience is very poor partners the laboring people don't get what they need met, and it negatively affects the father's mental health and his parenting self efficacy afterwards so I mean when you show that mirror is like okay when you have this visitor policy this is really what you're saying about partners is you're saying that this is our bias this is what they ought to do they need to be fit into this role and we don't really care about the quality of their experience i don't think that's what they intend to say but that's what is revealed by those policies as though those cultural biases
0: i think it's very um valuable to 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 see it that way as a mirror and not necessarily as something that they are intending to do and as a professional that's a much nicer way of presenting information than to go onto a social media board and blast a hospital or blast a particular uh, care provider Um, but if someone wanted to use these suggestions and maybe multiple different ways to talk to an administration who would they be sending these things to
1: Um, that would be the point person is you should call the unit clerk at the hospital labor and delivery unit and say, who should I discuss this with? Am I going to the unit director? I mean, the size of the hospital is going to matter. Uh, or is it the clinical nurse practitioner? Is it the CNP who's doing, you know, writing up the policies and is going to figure that out. So, um, hopefully the unit clerk would know that. Um, And uh, yeah, about who you should direct your comments to. The other thing too, is if you're getting stalled at that level, is prospective patients need to call. People who are going to be birthing in the next four to five, four to six weeks, is they may need to put on some pressure on the hospital and say, look, this is the experience I wanted to have. Your hospital told me I could have that. You're not giving me a good enough reason. Since we don't have an active outbreak and I'm not ill, and my doula's not ill, my partner's not ill, you need to give me a good enough reason why I can't have the best possible birth experience in your facility. Because consumer pressure does make a difference.
2: Amy, does that change for areas that do, uh, that are seeing more activity like Seattle or like here in Ohio, we've pretty much shut down the, the state. Like all of our schools have closed for the next three weeks. Um, there's a lot of extra precautions like we're not we have bans on events over a hundred people um so does that does the language that needs to be used change uh based on location and severity of what people are experiencing
1: well when i was reading the uh, u.s senators for disease control recommendations yesterday What they said was was that even patients with active COVID-19 infections are still allowed visitors as long as visitors use proper hand-washing techniques, avoid touching the patient, and avoid touching any surfaces they may have touched. If the medical center does decide to restrict visitors, the guidelines state that facilities can consider exemptions based on end-of-life situations or when a visitor is essential for the patient's emotional well-being and care. So, I mean, they're not even restricting visitors. You can't with people who have active infections. So you can't say you can't have anybody with you, you know, um, that's going too far. And with this particular virus, with what we know about it, what was presented yesterday in the phone call, the people who are more at risk are people who are high risk anyway. So people, high-risk infants, and, um, and high-risk pregnant people, and also the elderly.
0: When you say the phone call, what phone call are you referencing?
1: About the CDC phone call that was specifically about labor and delivery, obstetric um, and pediatric patients. So it was going through what are our guidelines as of today? What are we telling you now? Um, infants who seem to get the disease, um, newborns, including newborns in China, um, what they said was was that they get a mild, tend to get a mild form of the disease if they are healthy. The problem with infants is that they shed the virus for 30 days. So they shed it through their spit and their poop and stuff like that. So they're actively shedding the virus even when they're not showing any symptoms after they're done. And that seems to be the longest period is adults may get more acute um, forms than children so the the infection may be worse in an adult than it will be in a child, but we don't shed it for nearly as long for some reason um, infants and younger than in to- toddlers will shed it for longer periods of time. Preschoolers and children who are basically healthy who get an infection are not really at risk for dying it's once again people with underlying health conditions that are more at risk so I mean when i 'm thinking about Um, taking care of ourselves and minimizing the possibility of transmission, it's about are are people who are at higher risk already isolating themselves? I talked to two people today, and I said, so what are you doing? I know you have a high-risk pregnancy, and one of them has five children already. And so she says they're not going to school anymore because they don't want to risk me. So that's a family decision that they made that was supported by you know, their teachers and their school district. Because right now we don't, our schools aren't closed yet here. The university is after spring break because they don't expect the students to expect the, to respect the boundaries because they're young people. They're gonna go all over the country. They're not changing their spring break plans. So they don't want them to come back from all those places where they've been and then share germs for the rest of the semester. They're making them stay out of classes, I think, for three weeks after spring break, and then classes will resume. Then the in-person portion of it. So that's the decision that's been made here.
0: Yeah, it's curious to see how different communities are re- are reacting to that. We the Chicago Public School District has not yet closed as of today. The Chicago Teachers Union is putting pressure on the 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 local government to close those schools um, but universities and private schools are absolutely closing and many many families are making similar decisions to what what you're talking about too amy is there anything else um anything else that you want to share that that could be helpful here for us i think i want to
1: say that that pretty much what i started out with is this is a critical time for the doula profession we're going to find out in terms of you see doula's are a profession, but there were also a social movement because as a social movement, we're advocating for the autonomy of the laboring person, we're advocating for social change so that their voice is heard, we're advocating for um, billing differences so that our costs are covered. Um, there's lots of things that doulas represent that is forcing people's hand in terms of social change. It's like, you want those better outcomes? Well, you know, you're going to have to change the system in response. So what I expect to see here is I expect to see some places where the doula's position as being respected and valued is going to get solidified and enhanced. And in those communities that really don't want to change, that really would much rather put a power over move and get rid of the doulas, they're going to see what they, if they can make that happen through these policies. I mean, I I have happened to discuss recently with some doulas in Las Vegas who say, you know, we can't, uh, we can't, not only can we not get in for a most cesarean births, it's like, you know, they're kicking us out when people are getting epidurals. It's like they find any excuse that they can to minimize, uh, you know, our role. And so I'm curious about what's going to happen there. And Las Vegas is certainly a place where you would expect, you know, everybody goes there from all over the world. So um I'm I'm curious about what's going to happen there, and like I said, in my community, where we're working to get doulas into the operating room for sure. You know, that was one one initiative that I was just meeting with um, with uh, uh, some hospital leaders to do that just this week, and then we postponed it um, because of this outbreak. But here again, they sent this email today saying, you know, we do affirm your value and your worth. So um, I think I think it's we're going to have a much it's not gonna be so subtle. We're gonna know who our supporters are and who they aren't. And that's going to shift things from now on. Yeah, and also how doulas act. If Are you a professional? Are you, because experiencing the doula in the time of crisis as a competent, caring and cooperative professional is gonna go really, really far when you're trying to get more enhanced privileges and really work ourselves into a solid place on the healthcare team for laboring people.
0: Absolutely. There's definitely um, reasons to be nervous, but I think that overall I'm trying to view this, and Cole, I think you agree with me, I think we're trying to view this as an opportunity to uh, shine light on Mm -hmm. just the breadth with which we can be helpful in this type of scenario. And, And we're talking a lot about labor, but then also for postpartum in Chicago, there's a lot of people who are reaching out because now their family is not coming to them to help them in their postpartum period. And so trying to find ways um, to continue to show our value in a way that, like you said, is competent and caring um, and also safe as well.
1: You know, one thing we didn't talk about, and that's probably really uh, essential to talk about, is if we want to uh, continue to serve as doulas in the next four weeks, we have to practice good isolation techniques. You know, it's like, we're not going on spring break. We're not going to the airport to pick anybody up. We're not going into crowds. We're not going to the music recital at school. We're not doing any of that stuff. That's going to mix this up with anybody. I have a doula training coming up in two weeks. And that's basically, I'm going to right now, I'm going to hold the thing anyway. But what I'm going to say is, is that if you plan to attend, here are some things, assumptions that I'm going to make about the fact that you're not going to expose yourself and put yourself at risk by doing these things, you will be, you won't come if you're ill. So I, um, I think doulas just are, if we have to be much more vigilant, um, than we were before. And I think, you didn't really care that much about getting the flu. So maybe you were more casual. I have not been because I'm, and I have avoided, um, getting ill with colds and the flu for almost two and a half years now, because I have to sanitize everything on the plane, anywhere I go, any kind of rental car, anything like that. I go in with the Clorox wipes. So I know I have the personal experience of knowing that Following these things will be protective. I have faith in that because I've had to do that for my own health the last few years. Other people don't have that um, experience. But if you're willing to limit yourself in order to be available to your clients, and this would be for all doulas, palliative care doulas, postpartum doulas, and birth doulas, if that's your priority, then you're going to have to limit your activities.
0: Absolutely. We, We have a fun family thing that we do that has been canceled. My kids are home they're not going to daycare. Yes, I have Clorox wipes in my coat pocket. So if I'm getting gas, I'm wiping things down. If I'm going to the grocery store, like, I, I I really don't expect anyone to understand that I work with a, a compromised class of people. And that's just because when you have a baby, your, your immune system is just wrecked already. So mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really strong point to make. And I don't know if doulas, um, again, another opportunity for this is doulas to evaluate how they are living their lives, generally speaking. So um, something as simple as taking your shoes off when you come home. And again, with hand washing, um, it's a fantastic reminder that small things really do make a gigantic difference in times like these.
1: Yeah. And... The other thing is we haven't talked about the cultural impact of restrictive visitor policies because you, Cole, and I are all white. And so in white culture, it's like birth is supposed to be a private event. It's a couple event. It's not something that's shared, but there's lots of other cultures birthing here in the United States that have doula support. And For several of my clients who I've dueled cross-culturally, they have many visitors, 12 visitors, 14 visitors, and those people will come and share their respects. So for people who are expecting to have a lot of visitors and they're not getting that, that's worth grieving over. And um, medical culture is like white culture on steroids, so there's no room in that system for them to really recognize that this is a loss. Absolutely. It's a big deal to not have all those people who you thought were going to be there there or visiting you because um, uh, even if you do get in, you're not allowed to like uh, tag team. So if you get two visitor badges, those are the two people who are with you for 24, 48 hours. You can't switch them out for somebody else. So, and then I also feel that we need to remember that after this, that we advocate for more going back to more open door visiting policies for those people of cultures that need that, require that, and not just think with our own limited white vision, oh, well, that's not needed, or oh, that's okay, you know, because it's
2: not. Amy, when I'm, I agree with you, it's not okay. Is that doulas have the potential to create space around or to create conversations prenatally, especially with our clients and helping them to start working through some of that grief and loss and reset expectations um, and help our, our clients, you know, navigate those feelings and emotions that go along with that.
1: Yeah, and postpartum rituals, too, because if you were expecting to have a lot of visitors or family members or, Ariel, you mentioned earlier that just people who were coming to live with you for the several weeks after the baby was born are not coming to do that anymore. So, and that's worth grieving over, too.
0: And, and I think our, our voice is heard a different way, Cole, and I were talking earlier today, and Cole, this is your story, but, you know, a microbiologist in the family can give advice, but when it comes from the doula, someone actually hears it. I mean, there's there's compassion that comes along with validating that how someone is feeling, um, it matters that you're – of course, you should be worried right now. I understand that you're worried right now, that that makes a lot of sense to me, and these are some things that you can do to protect yourself. And if it was only packaged coming from someone um, – without kind of this this doula facade, sometimes that message isn't even heard in the first place.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I had a, a postpartum client whose father-in-law is a microbiologist and it didn't matter what he said. Like it it mattered. It it helped her. <laughs> uh I'd completely dismiss it. But um she, she wanted to hear what I had to say. Um, she, she wanted, and I think she needed her fears validated. Um, you know, she just, she needed to hear that she's not going crazy and that she's not being obsessive compulsive or anything just that, yeah, this is really scary right now and this is what she can do and this is uh, how she can protect herself and protect her, her baby and her toddler. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's awful that we have to talk about protection, you know, cause th- what are we talking about? We're talking about stress hormones, So, you know, we also need to stress that in other countries, they're going around life as usual. I talked to someone um, uh, in Britain yesterday, and my close friend talked to her brother in Thailand, and they're just like saying, what, you're closing down schools? What? People aren't going to work? What? It's like over there, it's just everybody's hand washing more, using more hand sanitizer, and going about business as usual. So, um not everybody is doing what, responding the way we are. Um, and I think that's very interesting cross-cultural comparison too, for how different countries and different cultures within countries are handling this.
0: Amy, thank you so much for spending some time and talking with us. It's always a pleasure to hear what you have to say. And um, is there a place where people could go to read more about your work? Um, yes,
1: uh, my website, com has my blog. You can sign up for a newsletter on there. It also has information about the books that I've written and have for sale. So for doulas and, and uh, birth professionals.
0: Fantastic. And also, people should know that if they want to become a doula, you absolutely are a trainer and they can come and see you in person.
1: I am an amazing, fantastic doula trainer. That's what people tell me, yes. <laughs> She is one uh, of the best
2: doula trainers, specifically.
1: I am. am. That's what that's what I'm told. People want to learn from me. I have a lot of doula trainers who want to learn from me, so I'm working on that with Cole, actually. (laughs) Yeah. On uh, on how to present that.
2: And Amy, you have a blog post that should be out in the next couple of days as well, uh, with a little bit more in depth
0: information about this. Tomorrow, um, I'm I'm going to get it
1: done. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you so much, Amy. I appreciate your time. This is really interesting and and quite valuable. I appreciate it.